On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we'll talk to comic book writer and editor Paul Castiglia about his work for Archie Comics and the bajillion projects he's currently working on. And I discuss the new genre TV shows coming your way this fall and which of your favorites have gone to that big DVR in the sky. Now straight from Principal Weatherby's office at Riverdale High School, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! there, and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 5 for May 2016. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. I'm referring to movies, TV, comics, games, theme parks, and more. And if all that sounds good to you, you, my friend, are in the right place. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. The following segment begins with a minor spoiler from Captain America Civil War, and also a reference to a Canadian city, a bit of disdain for TV network programmers, and many mentions of DC Comics characters. Consider yourself warned. May we please have a moment of silence for Margaret Peggy Carter, who in the space of one week passed twice from our lives. As a fictional character, Peggy Carter made a name for herself as a secret agent for the Scientific Strategic Reserve during World War II, battling alongside Captain America and the Howling Commandos in the European theater, and also against domestic threats, including raging sexism, in post-war America. She was one of the founding members of S.H.I.E.L.D., where her legacy will be remembered. She passed away peacefully in her sleep at the age of 95. Not bad for a spy. In the real world, fans are even more broken up over the cancellation of her TV series, Agent Carter, which received the axe during a brutal TV network upfront season. That's the time of year in which the networks reveal their fall broadcasting slates to advertisers and the media. This is often the moment when we learn not only which new shows will debut in the fall, but also which shows will be returning and which shows have been ditched faster than a 12th episode of Firefly. ABC retired Agent Carter, which admittedly was far from a ratings powerhouse in its two abbreviated seasons. Since the show ended on a cliffhanger, fans online are hoping that Agent Carter, played by Haley Atwell, may yet return for at least one more adventure in the 1950s, ideally on Netflix in the 2010s, to tie up loose narrative threads. Fans of Agent Carter's sister show, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., faced some bad news of their own in regards to the show's popular characters Bobby Morse, aka Mockingbird, and Lance Hunter, aka the British guy in an on-again, off-again relationship with her. A few months ago, the two characters, played respectively by Adrian Palicki and Nick Blood, a name even more comic booky than his characters, were decisively written off the show in a way that would not allow for an easy return. But you know what? That was fine. That was okay, since the two were supposed to get their own spin-off show, Marvel's Most Wanted, which had been in development for two years at ABC. A great plan! Until Marvel's Most Wanted became ABC's least desired, and it was not picked up for the fall. So, in review, two of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s more engaging characters were just written off the show for no great reason? Fantastic. The new darling of the DC television universe, Supergirl, was also facing cancellation doom, but somehow she cheated death in a manner so incredible it must have involved red kryptonite. 
In the show's first season, Supergirl emerged as a respectable hit for CBS, delivering okay ratings, but it didn't quite fit the network's demographic, and it was expensive to produce, reportedly $3 million per episode, due to licensing fees. But rather than banish it to the Phantom Zone, CBS opted to significantly cut the budget, move production from Los Angeles to Vancouver, and shift networks from CBS to the CW. Now, in a way, The CW is more of a natural fit for Supergirl since the show joins fellow DC Comics series Arrow, The Flash, and Legends of Tomorrow, all on The CW, all of which will be returning for new seasons in the fall as well. Heck, she's already had a crossover episode with The Flash, for crying out loud. And consolidation on The CW just makes it easier for producer Greg Berlanti. Expanding the super mythos even further this fall will be Krypton on Sci-Fi. The show will follow the travails of Superman's grandfather as he fights to restore respect and honor to the House of El in the time before the planet blows up and launches the Superman story. So yes, similar to Fox's Gotham, which will also be returning, Krypton will be a prequel series. A Superman prequel series without Superman. If that's still not enough DC TV for you, and you know what, we're not even talking about the DC-inspired and freshly renewed series Lucifer and iZombie, you can flip over to Powerless on NBC. Now this one is a comedy series starring Vanessa Hudgens as an insurance adjuster specializing in damage caused by superheroes. Now which is the part that sounds most tantalizing to you there, comic book fans? Comedy series, insurance adjuster, or non-powered DC Comics characters. Other returning series include The Walking Dead, shocker, The 100, Fear the Walking Dead, the Star Wars Rebels animated series, Colony, and Sleepy Hollow, but this time without former lead actress Nicole Beharie. Honestly, I didn't know that show was still on. And finally, a new Star Trek series will debut on CBS in January, move to their digital platform, CBS All Access, shortly thereafter, and into the hearts, minds, and wardrobes of enthusiastic cosplayers soon after that. So stock up on those eye drops, geeks. You've got some serious TV watching to do. I realize I left one new comic book-inspired show off that list of upcoming TV series, and that would be The CW's Riverdale, a one-hour drama based on the Archie comics characters. My guest on this episode would enthusiastically agree that Archie never goes out of style. Of course, he has a soft spot for the friends from Riverdale, since he was a writer and editor at Archie Comics for a very long time. He is comic book writer Paul Castiglia, and we spoke about comics, movies, and all things geeky way back in November at the Superheroes for Hospice fundraiser comic book sale in Livingston, New Jersey. Paul Castiglia is a busy, busy man. Over the course of your career, your job titles have included writer in various mediums, right? Editor, film producer, creative consultant, casting producer, music supervisor, creator coordinator, songwriter, uh, and I'm sure that there's a few more in that in that uh, esteemed career that I'm that I'm missing. And we're going to talk about as many of them as we can. Um, and well, we'll see. <laughs> well, either way, welcome to 1.21 gigawatts, Paul. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, I've got to say that um, even researching everything that you've been involved with over the years just makes me happy seeing that list um, because it seems like so many of the projects that you've been involved with over the years are fun and upbeat. They're not cynical and all ages friendly, um, which 
not that I'm against, you know, cynical projects from now and then, but it seems like it's more and more a rarity, especially in comics over the last, you know, 20 years or so. I assume that that's a bit of a conscious choice on your part. Oh, yeah, sure, definitely. It's where, it's where I feel most at home. It's where I'm most comfortable. You know, I think I have a, a dramatic story or two in me that might be a little more uh, deep or adult or daring or edgy. Uh, that will come out at some point, but for now I'm enjoying doing the fun stuff, the uplifting stuff. Uh, I think there's a place for it. And, um, you know, just even from the time I was a kid, I loved superheroes, like, probably from the moment I came out of the womb, but I also loved uh, all animated cartoons. Yeah. And so I was brought up on a steady diet of Looney Tunes and, you know, Hanna-Barbera cartoons, you know, Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, all that. Uh, underdog, Bullwinkle, you name it. And so these are things that always, you know, they put humor first. You know, every now and then there might be some kind of sly uh, social commentary or something in there, especially on things like Bullwinkle. And I love that too, yeah. but I, I feel there's a way to do that and be clever and fun and creative. Uh, you know, we live in a time now where it, there, it seems to be um, the norm to kind of step over a line sure. to get a laugh or, or to make a point. And I'm like, well, yeah, you can still make a point and get a laugh without stepping over a line. It uh, seems like an easy choice. It's an sometimes. easy choice, yeah. yeah it's, it, I, I call it lazy writing when, um, when you have to resort to too much um, shock value, you know, especially if you're doing something uh, that's supposed to be funny. Sure, So. Sure. Anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell me about um, how you got started writing comics in the first place, or, or writing in general, because, of course, you're, you're a cross-medium man. Uh, yeah, well, I started writing comics because I first tried to draw comics. Yeah. Uh, I went to mm -hmm. School of Visual Arts, I majored in animation and cartooning, and when I graduated, I realized that I didn't really have a handle on anatomy, perspective, or composition, which are the things I would need in, <laughs> order, to, sure. in order to compete with the majority <laughs> of my classmates. And I graduated with some very good folks. Uh, so I said, well, what are my strengths? And I said, well, I know how to think visually. I can at least draw well enough to convey a story in, in a rough form, mm -hmm. like a storyboard. And I, I like to tell stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I had a handle on that. So I said, well, that's what I'm going to concentrate on. I'll put together a portfolio of picture scripts. And that's what I ended up doing. And I got work uh, in late uh, 1989. My first published work uh, that I got was for DC Comics, uh, writing for, for Looney Tunes magazine at the time. And they didn't have a comic at that time. They had a magazine. Uh -huh. It had puzzles, games, features. Uh, activities and they had some comic stories in it yeah. and uh, you know I cut my teeth writing some uh, you know activity pages and feature pages uh, and that's how I got started and and then I just kept um, bouncing around between the publishers looking for assistant editor positions mm -hmm. so that I could learn the business from that standpoint uh, yeah, I, I interviewed at Marvel I interviewed with Harvey and I interviewed with Archie and the Archie job was the one I got and that became um, an almost decade-long staff position for me, and uh, the beginning of what's been, a, I guess, a 26 or 27-year association with yeah. uh, with Archie. So yeah. that's that's funny how that works, and indeed, as we're uh, sitting here right in front of you, of course, use the mind's eye, people, uh, is a table that is largely dominated by. Um, uh, your projects at Archie, either as a writer or as an editor, and you've you've worn a lot of hats just just at Archie alone. Um, did you read Archie when you were growing up? 
You know, that's the funny thing. When people ask me that, they're surprised at <laughs> my answer. I didn't read it much. Um, occasionally, I'd pick up an issue of Jughead uh, at church. They had the Archie yeah. Christian comics, so I would get those. And those I liked. I liked the Al Hartley art in those. And, um, but I didn't, by and large, read I was big on superheroes, so I, I was always reading Spider-Man or Justice League. Uh, you know... Um, Trying to think some of the others, the Phantom that Charlton was putting out at the mm-hmm. time, uh, Daredevil, Fantastic Four, yeah. uh, Batman, Superman. If anybody had uh, the the big like annuals or the one hundred page giants that were filled with reprints, yeah. I would snatch them up because I loved reading the reprints. Uh, when I was a kid, really young, I used to borrow the great comic book heroes, the Jules Pfeiffer book, out of my local library over and over and over again. And at the same time, uh, when I was growing up in the 70s uh, and early 80s, mostly the 70s, they had Dynamite magazine that yes. used to get through Scholastic, oh, and they were always they were always had the reprints of the origins. <laughs> so I was, you know, uh, unlike today's kids, where the where the older stuff is almost kept out of circulation from them, uh, inexplicably, I had access to that older stuff all the time and I loved it. That's true. So, it was more celebrated in a, yeah, in a way back then. And I, and I just had this conversation uh, with my friend here at the convention uh, saying to him, I, I believe that if the stuff is put in front of the kids they'll embrace it. Yeah. Whereas I think uh, a lot of the the people calling the shots at big publishers these days are saying, kids don't want that old stuff anymore. Mm. You know, I run across this when I wear my other hats. I'm a film historian too. Uh, I'm writing a book called Scared Silly about uh, the old-time uh, comedy movies where the comedians used to get mixed up in spooky situations. And I speak at film screenings all the time. Uh, I'm a regular at the West Orange Film Classic Film Festival. And to me, you know, we bring these films out, and the, the kids are brought to them and watch them. They enjoy them. Absolutely. They forget in two seconds that it's black and white yeah. or that it's old. And they realize, oh, this is really fun and creative and entertaining. I, I showed Abbott and Gastelum Frankenstein to a packed house at West Orange Classic Film Festival. Yeah. And one of the questions the kids had afterwards was, are they going to make any more of these? <laughs> so, you know, you tell me, you know, you know, if, they, if you build it, they will come. And, um, you know, of course, we had to break it to the kids that everybody in the film is dead now, pretty much. <laughs> Uh, but that they actually did make a series of movies where having Stella met a whole bunch of monsters. Right. So and, and that made the kids happy. Uh, so uh, I forgot what the original question was, but here we are talking I, about. I like things. it. It's, it's perfect. And you know? and and I agree that stuff. Uh, whether we're talking about uh, reprint comics from from back in the day or or movies like that, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was recently screened in my house, and my kid loved it for exactly the same reason because it still plays and just like those old comics it's sort of the same way right. and that's and that's one of the fortunate things I was able to do uh, during my tenure on staff at Archie and even beyond as a freelancer uh, you know I got to research and compile the Archie Americana books which are the the decade by decade uh, compilations of, of vintage reprints and that was a joy for me and, and I, I think the original question was about that I read the comics uh, when I was a kid you know, I got to really uh, learn both the history of Archie and to learn to love Archie by working on those Americana books and by reading the old stories, especially the stories from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, which were so freewheeling and had so much great humor in them. Uh, that's how I really came to love and cherish Archie. Uh, so, 
you know, it was meant to be. You know, it didn't happen as much for me when I was a kid, but now I, I realized what, what was always great about Archie. Yeah. And um, so when I had a chance later on to write Archie stories, especially when I was writing the Archie's Word of Mystery series, uh, you know, I, I said, I, I want to make them as freewheeling as possible and funny and goofy and filled with puns and, yeah. and just absurd situations and just have fun with it. And right. I've kind of applied that to, to most of my work over the years, uh, whether it was for Archie or other publishers. I, I know that when you were with Archie for a, a spell there, also you were writing Sonic, um, the Hedgehog, and I always find, uh, I'm always curious about when writing licensed characters and that sort of thing, whether or not there are additional layers of approvals or what you've got to go through or not. Sometimes I'm surprised by how, how easy it is, whether in this case, like say someone like Sega or someone had to say like, you can do this with Sonic, but you can't do something else. Oh, that's always something that happens. I, I was on both ends of that. I, I edited about six issues of Sonic, maybe more, I, I can't recall. And I wrote two Sonic stories. Um, but by the time I wrote the stories, I think things were in place and I kind of already knew, you know, what the do's and don'ts were. And so for Sonic, what was fun there was that when the series first started out, it was it was more of a, a kid's book and, and humorous. And so the first story I wrote was just a funny, humorous story. But then when I wrote a few another story a few years later, the, the book had become more serious. And so I said, oh, here's a chance for me to actually do a more serious story. And it might be one of the more, most serious stories I've ever I've published. You know, of all the humor stuff I've done, one of my Sonic stories, which someone on the surface who wouldn't know any better might think, oh, that's another goofy, funny animal hero story. That's like a pretty serious story. So, so I'm, I'm glad I had a chance to do that. Uh, the biggest example I can give you of a licensor parameters is I wrote an issue, uh, a sto lead story for an issue of DC Showcase. Mm -hmm. And in that story, uh, my main character was Bibbo, Superman's pal. And the idea was that Bibbo was you know, trying to encourage this guy who was about to jump over a bridge uh, not to kill himself and that there's reasons to live and that he can overcome anything. And in the story, I had Bibbo telling tall tales to the guy of how he, he bested all the different supervillains in the DC universe. I have a copy of the issue right there on the table, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, that story was such a challenge to write because by using all the villains in DC Universe, the editor of my story had to run the story by the editors of each of those comics. In each of those groups, there's the Superman group of titles, the Batman super, uh, group of titles, the Flash group of titles, Wonder Woman, you name it. So everybody came back with, well, you can't have them saying this, you can't have them doing that. And so that was a challenge. So, uh, the wackiest example I can give is that I have a scene in the book where uh, Bibbo's telling the story about how he faced off against the Joker, okay? And in the course of the tale, uh, the Joker mentions Batman. And the editor came back and said, well, you can't mention Batman. I'm like, what do you mean you can't mention Batman? <laughs> well. It's, it's supposed to be that Batman's this urban legend and nobody's quite sure he exists. And I was like, well, yeah, but it's the Joker mentioning Batman, the guy who's clocked him in the chin a billion times. <laughs> he knows he exists. Right. Now you can't mention Batman. So, yeah, I had to work around it. You know, I don't know. I was, maybe I was allowed to use a nickname like Bats or something. I forget. 
I'd have to go back and look at it. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so those are some challenges you face when you're working on a licensed yeah. uh, title like that. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I want to I use the story about um, uh, that one that you're telling us as a segue to talk about some of the other more socially conscious things that you've done, actually, such as, um, I'm really fascinated about the work that you just did for uh, Rise, Comics Against Bullying, oh, yes. and, and that story. Tell me about how that came to be. Oh, you know, well, well comics is a community, and I tell people, if you want to get into comics, um, if your main goal is that you think you're going to become rich and famous and sell something to Hollywood and make a bazillion dollars with a movie franchise, that's not the right reason to get into comics, because that happens to few and far between people. You get into comics, one for the love of the medium, for its sequential storytelling, which is you know this unique art form uh, that is just so prevalent here in the United States and all over the world now. But but um, I think it, it, the development of it, by and large, is what what happened in America with the comic books in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, you get into it for the love of that first and foremost, and then you get into it because you want to be part of a community and. There's no greater community than the comics community. Once you're in, you know, the people you meet, it's unbelievable. You know, your fellow uh, writers and artists, your creators, um, you know, we all tend to support one another. You know, there are people out there who are just about, um, you know, the competition. I got to beat the competition. But there are many more that are just about, hey, we're all in this together and we all love what we do and we want to just give great stories to the world. And so... One of the people that I've met along the way and met here at this Superheroes for uh, Hospice Convention is this a fine writer named Erica Schultz. She writes a comic book called M3. It's, it's brilliant. And so we've become friendly. And she approached me at a certain point and said, hey, I'm getting together with a group of people to edit a comic book that will help raise awareness about bullying and help raise uh, funds for anti-bullying initiatives. Would you be interested in donating a story? And I'm like... Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, I wrote a five-page story. I contacted my friend Chris Allen, who used to uh, draw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for Archie, and uh, he, he jumped at the chance, too. And uh, it was just a great little fun story. Um, I was able to also to reach out uh, to Eddie Deason, who's the, uh, the comedic actor uh, seen in many movies like Grease and a bunch of movies over the years. Um, and I reached out to him and said, Eddie, you know, I'd love to draw you, have you drawn into the story as the principal of the high school? What do you say? And I reached out to him on Facebook and said, yeah, do it. You know, so, it, you know, one thing just leads yeah. to another and it just expands from there. You know, it's all about community and yeah. friendships and, and mutual admiration. Yeah. So uh, that's how that came about. And, and as a kid, you know, I went through some, you know, some incidents where I was bullied. I was overweight for for most of my life, so I was bullied for that. I was bullied just for liking superheroes and comic books. I was bullied even for having religious beliefs. Hmm. So you know, um, I said, "Yeah, I'm I'm doing this." You know, yeah. so yeah. In uh, the spirit of the uh, the greater comic book creator community, then I'm guessing that it must be a blast then to be involved with something like uh, War of the Independence, which 
of course, and, and I'm please fill in some of the blanks here if I'm getting this wrong. But of course, the idea is that inherently the series is a parody of like the giant crossover events yes. from Marvel and DC and whatnot, Crisis on Infinite Earths, Secret yes. Wars, that sort of thing. But then when you get to play in the sandbox for the comedy issue, yeah. and then get to use all kinds of great yeah. characters. Yeah. Well, this is again, this is another example of what I mentioned before about meeting people and yeah. becoming friends with people. Dave Ryan, I also met here at Superheroes for Hospice, and he is the creator of War the Independence and the publisher, uh, Red Anvil Comics is his company, and he'd already been doing this. He said he's got three issues out already. Um, the other issues tend to have mostly non-humor independent characters in them, although I think the tick is running around at least a couple of those issues. And um, he, he just, you know, I guess he just said to himself, hey, you know, I'm friends with this guy Pools. I wrote Archie's Room Mysteries and all this funny stuff. And um, he knows his way around this material, so maybe I think? should bring him on, yeah. you know, to, to write this issue. And so I worked from Dave's plot, and I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. In one fell swoop, I quadrupled the numbers of, ca of characters I've written. <laughs> I mean, I had already written, you know, all the Archie characters, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Sonic, uh, Tex Avery characters yeah. for Dark Horse, you know, and all those DC villains right, and right. Bibbo, and, and that was all great, but now it's The Tick and Milk and Cheese and Too Much Coffee Man and Flaming Carrot and, and Gummy and Pokey and, and uh, Felix the Cat and, you know, Zippy the Pinhead. I mean, the list goes on and on. Megaton Man, um, leaving people out. There's so many in this issue. Uh, uh, Usagi Ojimbo, Cerebus, Bone. Mm -hmm. So, holy mackerel, what a blessing and and um, and a treat and a thrill and and it's fun. And then this one, you know, this one is more of a PG-13 for me. Uh, you know, but hey, you know, it's it's still, you know, I, I don't think anybody's going to be offended by anything in it. I, I don't tend to offend. Uh, but you know, I like a romp every now and then, uh, you know, uh, and sure. so like I got to play with some characters and a, a tone a little bit different than I usually get to play with, but but always just completely wacko. It has a lot in common with the Archie's Word mystery stories I wrote, and so I like that. You know, I have that coming out. I, I I'm thinking that's going to be out next year sometime because I know it's being colored and lettered at the moment. Okay. And so we're already, you know, almost at Thanksgiving. I'm gonna assume that's next year. I also wrote a backup story uh, for my friend Tom Hall's book, King, which uh, hopefully will be out next year as well. And that was another kind of a PG-13, but just so much fun. It's about a, a wrestler who, um, who, uh, who was a former professional wrestler who looks like Elvis, who fights monsters. Yeah. And he's now like a, sure. a bounty hunter Naturally. for monsters. So. I got to write a backup for that, and I loved it. So, you know, as, as long as there are opportunities, I would love to write a, a humor book on a regular basis again, yeah. you know, and, and preferably one that's not, you know, just going over the line, shocking for shock sake, something sure. that just can be fun and funny and silly. Yeah. Uh, you know, so anybody listening to this podcast who wants to uh, say, hey, that guy right, wrote Archie's Weird Mysteries and all that other stuff, you know, maybe he's available. Well, I am. So, you know, you hear that? Movers and shakers, make that happen. Cool. I would love to do it. <laughs> All right. Well, I will uh, let you get back to this, but I really appreciate everything. And um, everyone should be looking out there for the upcoming things. How can people uh, follow your work or get a hold of you and say thanks uh, if they want to find you online? Uh, finding me online is fairly fairly easy, I guess. I have a, a blog for my Scared Silly project. Uh, so if you uh, go to Scared Silly 
by paulcastiglia.blogspot.com. You'll find me there. Um, there's a Facebook author page for me, which I need to update more often. Uh, but I'm out there. I'm around. You know, I'm always have something going on. I'm also working on a documentary about the Bowery Boys. That's my film project. So uh, hopefully we'll see that in 2016 or 17. Uh, so there's there's always ways to to find me. Scared Silly is probably the best way because I'll, I I tend to update that with uh, information about my upcoming appearances and different projects I'm working on. So that's probably the best place. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. I know you've got a really busy season ahead of you as well. So have fun at the show and uh, at your next port of call. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Matt. You bet. Take care. Be well. War of the Independence Number 4, written by Paul Castiglia, was recently released by Red Anvil Comics. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. So, how did we do? What do you think? Leave me your feedback at the social media channels, and you might even hear your name on the podcast. You'll be famous in the ears of tens of listeners. Thanks to all of you that have been listening from episode to episode and have shared your thoughts and support. On Facebook, Sharon Hather called the last episode brilliant and said, great interview, Brad. Oh, you're too kind, Sharon. And thanks again for submitting a question for the interview with Aaron Stanford. Speaking of thanks, huge gratitude to sound magician, composer, and my co-producer, David Sisko. You are and remain the finest audio chef in New York City. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this free travel-sized chunk of Geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. Let people know that you're listening. You can like the 1.21 Geekawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Geekawatts, and come check out some pictures of my own geeky treasure trove at 1.21 underscore Geekawatts on Instagram. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's Nerd Rock Band H2 Awesome with our rad-tastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. 1.21 Gigawatts. 1.21 What every geek wants is what we got. From Doctor Who to Aqualad, we might think Luke and Leia's dead. Pop culture that is super rad. Hosted by some guy named Brad. Show.